This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, I visit with Eric Young. Eric has been involved in the compliance profession since 1980, one of the most senior people I know in our field. We take a look at his career, some of the significant cases and work that he has done, and three pieces of advice he would give a new CCO. He closes with a discussion of the book he is writing. It's a great episode. I know you'll enjoy Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Eric Young. Uh, Eric and I recently met uh, virtually and then have been communicating. And it turns out Eric has been in the compliance profession longer than any other human I've met. So, Eric, with that uh, introduction, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. So, uh, as I mentioned, uh, you have been in compliance literally longer than anyone I know. I'm not sure that was your intention when you started, but I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about uh, your professional career, uh, starting with the Fed. Sure. I'll give you the executive summary version. I've been a career compliance officer for 40 years after graduating at the age of 20 with a degree in economics at uh, Columbia in, in New York. Over that time, I've re-engineered compliance programs to enable regulatory health and business growth because those two objectives are not usually exclusive. Um, I learned this at the Fed uh, when I started my career, that basically compliance enables growth and poor compliance stunts growth. And the reason why I say that uh, in terms of my Fed um, job was that I analyzed foreign banks wanting to come to the U.S. and U.S. banks wanting to expand internationally, which was essentially their strategic plan. And they needed the Fed approval to um, to expand because what they would do is seek new powers, new activities that were not written in the law, but perhaps met the spirit of the law. And that is another way of talking about compliance because in those days, uh, we didn't use the word compliance, but what we analyzed was not just the financial strength, but also the managerial culture of the firm as we uh, were the ones auditing or examining them and their record of compliance through their audits and uh, exam reports. So after uh, the Fed, then I joined uh, the original Chase, today J.P. Morgan, uh, I've also been head of compliance for uh, different GE divisions, uh, the industrial arm as well as GE Capital. I was global CCO of S&P Global Ratings and uh, most recently as CCO with uh, BMP Paribas Americas region. They're the big French bank and I've worked for three other foreign banks as, as well. So I, I've always loved compliance it's never boring. It's always learning, and it's very strategic, and, 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 and that's why I've done it as long as I have. So what are you up to now, Eric? So I, I retired uh, after five great years with, with the bank, the BNP Paribas, and, and my goal there in January of 2015 when I joined was to um, help globally and regionally um, reach satisfactory um, 
compliance in terms of uh, the variety of, of the requirements that they had to meet. And I left right before the pandemic. The timing was uh, quite fortunate and, and retired. So I'm now teaching corporate compliance at Fordham Law and uh, also writing a, a book about the relationship of the board of directors and, uh, and the chief compliance officer. If I could add one more thing um, in terms of um, Chase, and I know we'll talk about it a little bit more, but there was no formal compliance program at, at Chase at the time, and this was in the uh, 1980s. I'm, I'm dating myself here. But um, we were part of finance, and we built our, our compliance program um, interestingly, interestingly, around the books and records and internal accounting control requirements of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which in turn became the foundation for our compliance and accounting controls. And as, as we'll talk about later, um, how that evolved through the U.S. sentencing guidelines and, and other laws and regs is a great foundation. You know, I find that fascinating because I've long advocated that uh, the COSO framework is absolutely critical. The COSO 2013 internal controls framework, I should specify, is absolutely critical to compliance because I view anti-corruption compliance as largely financial controls compliance. Exactly. And, and when, when I meet with a new client or a, a client and uh, for the first time who does not have a compliance program, I tell them that you probably have – 95 to 98% of a compliance program already in place in your controls. You just don't call it compliance. Exactly, because if good compliance should be embedded in the... Early on, you you sort of, uh, I think probably offhandedly dropped that you had worked on the Penn Square case. And my eyes just, I just popped when you said that. Uh, I don't know why that case has stuck with me as long as it has. Part of it was the uh, energy component. I'm a Houstonian or Texan, and I've been in the energy business as a lawyer for, for most of my professional career. So that's part of it. Um, I moved to Houston after law school right at the sort of either end of the boom or the start of the downturn, and Penn Square was the harbinger of that. And then they were really the first large bank failure that I could remember in my lifetime. I know they were obviously from the Great Depression and other times, but it was huge in the early 80s. We, we've exceeded that many times over since then, but I was really intrigued by your work on that. And if you could just tell us a little bit about that case and, and what in your, I mean, it led to Continental Illinois, which was also huge here in Houston, See first. Uh, as well, some other uh, catastrophic bank failures or that led to consolidations. And I just wanted to, to visit with you a little bit about that from your perspective. Could you uh, give the audience a little background into that case? Sure, absolutely. So not only the, those banks that you mentioned, but a lot of other banks uh, were, were part of the loan participations, including Chase. And that was part of the reason why uh, opportunities arose and for me to join from the Fed to Chase because they recognized that they needed to tighten their internal accounting controls, their risk management, whether credit or otherwise. Because at the same time, the same year, Chase had uh, some issues around government securities and a government securities dealer called Drysdale. It's, a, it's another name from, from the past. But as you said, um, it made regulators really focus on um, just internal controls, 
regulatory compliance, risk management. They used different terms, as we said, at that time, but they brought down major institutions. Um, and it could have brought down uh, Chase and, and, and others. So it, it made regulators and, and, and the banking industry focus on internal controls, particularly because, as, as we all know, regardless of industry, there's regulation and deregulation. And essentially, a good compliance program doesn't care whether there's regulation or deregulation. It's about change and, and managing that change effectively and how nimbly and the pandemic is a perfect um, global example of, of sudden change. But in terms of Penn Square, it was a small Oklahoma bank, maybe because uh, you're a Texan and it was an Oklahoma bank is the other reason um, of, of being noteworthy. But it grew aggressively. We've heard this story many times before, and we always will, is an institution that grows excess, excessively or aggressively uh, without necessarily the controls in place. And regulators often ask, do you have the controls not only to support your business today, but especially for tomorrow, especially if you're growing aggressively? And what Penn Square did over that decade was result in more regulation and, and and greater penalty. It was it became more than just a slap on the business risk, if you will. And it put compliance on the map because suddenly penalties were a million dollars per day per violation and it led the way uh ultimately in nineteen ninety one to um FIREA in 89, the FDIC Improvement Act in 91, and also, among other reasons, across industries, the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines in 91 as, as well. So a lot of these failures and crises, not surprisingly, across industries lead to legislation and regulation, and, and that was one of the results. One of the things that has intrigued me in my work around the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, I've been in this space since 07, is how I see uh, the regulators respond to new or different types of violations, and they will come out with an emphasis that you can read about in either a deferred prosecution or other settlement document, and then how uh, companies will pick up on that. So you have almost a continual evolution of particular controls, and I think the SEC is very good, at least in the FCPA space, in detailing control failures so that companies can have lessons learned. Would that be your experience as well? Absolutely. Um, Particularly now with the web and and the recent guidance and clarifications from the Justice Department and the SEC and other regulators, but with respect to FCPA and and the corporate compliance guidance, that come out of the sentencing guidelines, think of it as an open book test. And there's 61, 63 additional questions that clarify what's expected from an effective compliance program that provides reasonable assurance of, of good controls. And an open book test is a lot harder if you think about it, because then you're expected to meet the, the, and answer the questions. Uh, either over time or continuously, as, as you say. And um, that's what regulators expect because they're, they're providing the answers for you and therefore expect you to, to meet them. 
Eric, if I could turn maybe to your career now for a couple of questions. Uh, looking back uh, over the time you've worked in compliance, even if it was called something else, could you maybe give us uh, three of your top uh, either achievements or projects you worked on or perhaps even things that you're most proud of? Sure. So the, the three I'll do early, mid, and probably end of career. So first is taking the leap from Chase, where I, I was running compliance by then on a corporate compliance-wide or global basis, and leaving uh, for a foreign bank. It was before all the mergers with Chase, and I've been really fortunate uh, to be able to, to move from institution to institution because you take what you learn and you learn as you go. And so this foreign bank was was small, sleepy, corporate bank, in the U.S., but they had a strategy to grow very aggressively in capital markets. So this was in the 90s, and derivatives was the thing, but very mystical at that time. No one really understood what derivatives were. And in order to get the green light, turn the ignition key, we had to meet regulatory expectations and, and audits every year, and we were able to do that every year. So every year we were able to expand into derivatives, high-yield um, equities broker dealer, and in the '90s, that's when the barriers between banking and, and investment banking and certain commercial activities blurred, uh, deregulation, if you will, in the '90s. Second is mid-career. Um, by then, I was in banking and capital markets compliance for 25 years, so I was recruited by GE, and I wanted to be a fish out of water. I wanted to learn the industrial side of compliance. See how different compliance is when you're building a healthcare MRI uh, or a jet engine or a nuclear power plant or desalinating water or we owned NBC Universal at that time as well as light bulbs and uh, GE Capital, of course. So it was learning KYC and the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in a very different frame of mind, at least from what I'd seen in the banking industry. And it was fascinating because compliance had to be embedded in the business as you're building those engines or MRIs because by the time you get to the second line, it could be too late. You still need the second line. But it was a great way for me to learn process, people, and technology and how they fit together. And then finally, you know, after a long career, I'm proud to say that um, I've built, rebuilt compliance programs with success to enable strategic growth and it's been evolutionary as well as revolutionary. I think the pandemic will will require certain revolutionary compliance steps, but you need the right people, the adequate resources, and the right tools going forward. So cutting is, is not the answer. It's reallocating resources. And if you have to cut, you have to reinvest smartly in the right tools and, and people. Perhaps now, what three pieces of advice would you give someone who's moving into the CCO chair now? So one is um, compliance officers aren't paid how much we speak, but actually how well we listen carefully and, and objectively, how well we listen to regulators, um, auditors, lawyers, businesses, and then how we integrate what we hear into tangible solutions to comply and manage those risks really well to the point of what I always call regulatory health and 
sustainable and safe growth. And that's what we do uh, is, uh, and should continue to do is to listen. Second is get the facts, be decisive. Um, businesses do not like waffling. They, they want decisiveness, but it, it also requires listening and getting the facts because sometimes the facts aren't always there. It does take due diligence, but they want a decision and they prefer a yes as opposed to a no, but it, if it ends up a no, you got to have a third piece of advice, which is being courageous. We're not paid to be popular. We're not paid to speak a lot. We're not paid to be popular, but to be independent, objective, decisive, and, and courageous. And sometimes that means it's counter to the strategy, but it's coming up with an alternative, creative, but compliant strategy which allows you to think out of the box, to stay in the box, as, as I call it, to be compliant in the box. You can still be creative, but you got to be courageous. That's the most important thing. Erica, actually, I think we met uh, based upon a new project you're working on. I was wondering if you could uh, share with our listeners a little bit about that project. It explores the growing liability and exposure and the future skill sets of tomorrow's board of directors and, and chief compliance officers because they have to evolve as, as well. Today's directors and CCOs are both independent from management, but yet they're very liable from man, for management's misconduct. And recent uh, Delaware Supreme Court cases like Bluebell exposes the board of directors even more and creates an expectation of, of, of a duty of care for the board to really understand what compliance is and isn't and what risk appetite from a compliance point of view compliance needs to have. So the book explores um, across industries, not just the, the financial industry, but healthcare, energy, food, drug, uh, airlines, because the pandemic is showing where there's uh, interdependency across all these industries. The financial services acts as the hub, if you will, for all of these industries. But but there's gaps and controls and uh, exposure to the board and an opportunity for the chief compliance officer through whistleblowing reports and compliance metrics if given the chance and the opportunity to, to get more airtime to educate the board to challenge management because it's management's actions that are accountable and the board and compliance that's liable. Eric, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this uh, show, but I was wondering if uh, listeners wanted to get in touch with you for any reason, uh, follow up on anything you've talked about. It, how can they do so? I'm always on LinkedIn. I'm probably on LinkedIn uh, too much, but that's the best way to, to reach me. Um, it's it's also a great learning um venue for compliance and, and many professionals, uh, including thanks to you, Tom, and, and many of, of, uh, of our colleagues in the, the legal and compliance industry. So thank you for everything you do. Well, I will uh, take that and perhaps ask Eric if as you move forward with your project and a little bit closer uh, to uh, finalization, if we could come back and visit again and maybe see if we can catalog or at least discuss some of the findings and what your recommendations might be. Absolutely. I, I thank you for that. And thank you very much. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. 
I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take a look at an issue related to the FCPA Compliance and Ethics. We have two great new podcast series on the Compliance Podcast Network that I hope you're aware of. The first one is Compliance and Coronavirus, where I try to bring sanity and clarity to the compliance practitioner and the business executive around coronavirus. Also, the Compliance Life features one CCO a month talking about their journey to the CCO chair and beyond in four parts. Uh, this month, that's Ryan Robillet and has who has a fascinating journey. Also, if you're a fan of Teddy Roosevelt, I have a series on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership hosted by Richard Lummis, where we're looking at Teddy Roosevelt, his life, his presidency, and beyond, and what its messages are for the leaders of today. It's a fascinating series. I know you will enjoy it, and it's particularly important for compliance practitioners to uh, take a look at leadership skills. I hope you'll join me again next week for our next episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.